Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. This week we'll be discussing the latest news from the general election, from the launch of Labour and the Lib Dem manifestos, to the party's green grandstanding and much more. Labour's manifesto is a manifesto that will bring real change. This is socialism red in tooth and claw. We will get Brexit sorted by giving you, the people, the final say. Mr Corbyn can now tell us, are you going to campaign for leave or remain? We have wasted the last three and a half years talking about Brexit. The Labour Party launched its manifesto this week, promising the most radical and ambitious plan to transform our country in decades. It includes plans for a green transformation fund, nationalised broadband, free care for the elderly, free NHS prescriptions, free dental health checkups and a major new house building programme, among many other things. But the whole at the heart of it all is Labour's Brexit policy. Brendan, you wrote about Labour's Brexit stance uh, earlier this week. I mean, what do you make of it? I think their Brexit position is atrocious. And uh, in their manifesto, they say that the public will have a final say on Brexit. It says a a Labour government will implement whatever the people decide. And what they mean is that they will come up with a deal within three months of taking office, which hopefully won't happen. And then within another three months after that, they will put it to the public. The public will get to choose between Labour's deal or staying in the European Union. Now, we know from what Jeremy Corbyn said at the Confederation of British Industry that his deal, the thing they're aspiring to do, is have a customs union, have very close alignment with the single market – have EU agreed regulations on workers' rights and so on, i.e. things that you couldn't really change at a domestic democratic level. So what they would give us in their Brexit referendum is a choice between staying or staying, you know, remaining completely or remaining mostly. That's the choice they would give us. And when they say in their manifesto, we will implement whatever the people decide. That's a lie because Mm. the people have already decided. The people have decided to leave the European Union and Labour is flat out refusing to implement that decision. So they're they're lying. They're not implementing what the people have decided. They are reneging on what the people have decided. And, you know, all the other stuff in their manifesto, some of it is interesting. You know, who doesn't want free dentistry? Some of it is crazy. Um, You know, the obsession with climate change and so on is way over the top. But all of that is kind of meaningless uh, when you think about the question of democracy. Mm. Do they trust people to decide the fate of this country or don't they? And all their claims to radicalism and all their claims to come from the radical democratic traditions of this country and all their claims to want to nationalise and monopolise certain industries are completely shot down by their slavish uh, determination to keep us beholden to the neoliberal European Union, which effectively makes it illegal to have socialism. One of the most kind of striking things that's, that's been true for the, possibly the last six months is that people keep saying that they're confused by Labour's Brexit policy, that there's nothing to, you know, that it's difficult to understand. But really, actually, Labour's Brexit policy is clear. It's to stop Brexit. You know, I, there, there seems to be this kind of, even in the leaders' debate, for instance, this week, Jeremy Corbyn notably wouldn't say whether he would back leave or remain in a second referendum. I think he refused to be drawn on it around nine times. But at the end of the day, as, as for the reasons Brendan has outlined, we know that the position is, is remain. So why do we keep pretending that mm. it isn't? 
And they've taken a really kind of patronising stance and they put out this video on Twitter of this young guy looking at the camera saying, you know, okay, I'm going to explain Labour's mm. Brexit policy to you in 30 or 60 seconds or whatever it was. Mm. As if, you know, oh, everyone's making this really complicated and actually it's very simple. And yes, it is simple. It's about stopping Brexit because the second referendum options would be remain or remain. But it is also kind of made studiously complicated on purpose because the whole point is Labour, as we all know, has tried to sit on the fence in relation to not lose its leave voters up north and associate its remain voters in places like, uh, you know, Islington and North London. So that that kind of on purpose complicating or on purpose being ambiguous policy is probably going to bite them in the arse because it's just upsetting and annoying a lot of people. But the interesting thing when announcing their manifesto on Thursday morning Corbyn's main line is, you know, he's vowing to take on the wealthy elite. He's got mm. a hostility to the rich and powerful. He says the Conservatives want to use Brexit to unleash Thatcherism on steroids. He's really trying to sell himself, and we know this, trying to sell the Labour Party manifesto as this kind of workers, bottom-up, grassroots, anti-rich kind of, you know, incredibly powerful pledge, which is utterly ridiculous because as we all know whether or not the the voting numbers match up brexit has become a something that symbolically represents the many mm. and remain represents the few and so this idea that he is uh, seeking to be hostile to the rich and powerful and upset the elites whilst his party is pushing for the thing that they want, which is mm. to stop Brexit and to remain in the European Union and to maintain the status quo and to not shake up business and all of those kinds of things. It's crazy. And the thing that I've found so annoying, and I hate this phrase, I really hate this phrase, is when they keep saying, we want to talk about the bread and butter issues. Yeah. You know, We want to talk about the, the things that ordinary salt of the earth voters care about. What actually they're saying there is, okay, we'll give the working class of this country, a roof over their head and a food bank and a bit more change in their pocket. But what we won't do is treat them like intellectual and political equals. We mm. won't listen to their desires. We won't talk about ideology. All we'll do is say, put some bread in your mouth and shut up. And that's the real elitism at the heart of the Labour Party, because what it does is it seeks to speak for, but really actually only ever talks down to mm. the working class. And so then, you know, Talk about being, you know, challenging the elite. They are themselves representing the elite. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially, it wants to deny ordinary people the power to make changes in their life and in and in politics. That that's kind of sums it up. Faisal Islam from Sky was um, reporting at the manifesto launch that apparently all of the manifesto commitments have been checked that they are EU compliant. There's some grey areas and some legal debate as to whether some of them would work in the EU. But, you know, surely that in and of itself gives the game away that this is not a party that's about radical change. The fact that policies have to be put through and approved by lawyers and technocrats before they can even think about putting them to the people to vote on. Absolutely. I think Ella's completely right. The supposedly radical Corbynista Labour Party has this incredibly caricatured view of the establishment as, you know, these toffs in bowler hats who go around sneering at the little urchins in the streets and all this nonsense. <laughs> and of course, you know, there are some old fashioned toffs around, you know, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and so on, who's in many ways just kind of a comical figure. But I'm sure there are toff types around. But the idea that they are the, the key plank of the establishment or that they are running the country and that the, the, the Corbynistas are these, you know, 
seething radicals come to overthrow them is completely and utterly nonsensical. The truth is that the Corbynist Labour Party is fighting to preserve the neoliberal European Union, which is, as Ella points out, something that the virtually the entire business elite wants to do. The bankers want to do that. They are terrified of having any kind of firm break. And that's one reason why it's the capitalist class who have been most favour of technocratic government and mm. globalist government over the past few decades and even over the past century, because they recognise that it's handy to take big questions, especially economic questions, out of the hands of ordinary people and out of the hands of nation states because borders get in the way of the free flow of capital and borders get in the way of the free flow of labour. And capitalists don't like that. They like to have their workers and their capital flow around freely without pesky democratic populations putting it putting any block to that. So they've always liked globalist government. The bizarre thing is the fact that supposedly radical leftists are lining up behind that too. It makes mm. absolutely no sense to anyone who knows anything about history. And, you know, Tony Benn made this point many times that the EU is the only institution on earth which has capitalism written into its constitution, which is why he was opposed to it, because he recognised it was a boss's club and was anti-democratic. It's just really worth reminding these people who pose as radicals that this is what they are fighting to preserve. When they go out on the streets and take photos of themselves with their fists raised in the air and they kind of make, you know, memes of Karl Marx and, and go around, you know, taking selfies at statues of Engels in Manchester, we have to remind them they are devoting all of their political energy to preserving Britain's relationship with a neoliberal institution which has capitalism written into its heart and which has completely and utterly trounced working class rights and living standards across Europe, particularly in Greece, also in Italy. That's what they are on the side of. And anyone who thinks that's a radical proposition is nuts. And as far as I'm concerned, all the promises and all the statements made by Corbyn or made in the Labour manifesto are meaningless in the face of the fact that they have become neoliberalism's useful idiots. That's what these people are. And the other party that are quite happy to be neoliberalism's uh, useful idiots are the Liberal Democrats. They've put this kind of front and centre of their campaign. Uh, the slogan is uh, Stop Brexit, Build a Brighter Future. I mean, Ella, have you managed to take a look at any of their <laughs> pledges? That- well, it's the new slogan to replace the bollocks to Brexit one. Mm. It's like Lib Dems have suddenly realised that swearing on an election campaign might not work for them. I mean... It's interesting, isn't it, that the Lib Dems have tried to use this extreme position that they have of revoking Brexit, stopping it completely and rewinding history to position themselves as kind of the serious ones. And actually, yeah. it's it's made them look ridiculous because I think even the most ardent Remainers understand that in this general election campaign, taking what seems like a extremist view while everyone else is calling for nicety and politics and compromise and all these things isn't going to work. But the core thing about someone like Joe Swinson is that they, they really don't, if you look at the rest of their policies, whether it be in relation to, you know, just sort of very average things like an increase in the number of hours you can have free childcare or uh, taxing frequent flyers or all these kinds of things, they really are extremely bland as yeah. a party, extremely bland. Um, that's why they haven't ever been successful because they have been useful idiots of the Tories or others in the past. And so the only thing they have to cling on to is this anti-Brexit position. And it's, you know, even if you really desperately hate Brexit, it's 
backing a kind of destructive policy like this is never going to end well. Because I think what they don't realise is if you rewind history in this way, it sends the kind of message to voters that you can't be trusted in the future. And you know, Joe Swinson doesn't have a trustworthy face as it is anyway. I mean, mm. she's not liked by voters. But standing on this incredibly negative platform of essentially destroying democracy. Mm. Yeah thankfully, it seems, is not getting much traction with voters. The more pernicious thing, I think, will be, and the more dangerous thing, she perhaps recognises this, is that if voters turn to the softer version of stopping Brexit within the Labour Party, which is, I think, more, uh, has more scope for being a kind of acceptable destruction of democracy. But, you know, the Lib Dems are used to being a bit of a laughing stock, and I think they might end up being a laughing stock at the end of this general election. Hope so, anyway. Yeah, I mean, one of the most heartening things I saw this week was a poll from YouGov's tracker poll that showed that basically the more that voters learn about Jo Swinson, the more they see her on television, the more they hear her open her mouth, the more they dislike her. <laughs> and, you know, again, props to it, it makes you realise that the public out there are incredibly sensible people. <laughs> well, she enjoys firing stones at squirrels, isn't that the big news? <laughs> I mean, that's like, that, <laughs> just well, you know, general election campaigns always throw up some hilarious stories, and a fake news story went around about the fact that she yeah. pelts squirrels. Um, she goes on television to complain about this. I mean, for <laughs> God's sake! And then after she gives that very quick answer in the leaders' debate of yes, she would use nuclear weapons, suddenly the internet is awash <laughs> with the fact that Joe Swinson will nuke squirrels. I mean, this is not someone you can take seriously. I mean, she, she has that kind of um, sort of prefect or head girl yeah. vibe yeah. because you know, not only is she complaining about the newspapers mistreating her, she even, you know, tried to take the broadcasters to court for allowing a debate between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson and not including her, you know, top prime minister serial candidate that she is. She's been complaining to Twitter. She's the, the Liberal Democrats have put in a formal complaint to Twitter about the Conservatives' behaviour on that platform. I mean, it, this is a bizarre, strange woman. <laughs> it's very strange. And that poll that you mentioned is my favourite poll so far. The fact that the more people see her, the less they like her, which makes perfect sense, shows that people have got good judgement politically. No, she's a really dreadful politician and she really speaks to just the unimpressive nature of the political class today. You know, I wouldn't mind so much if democracy was being overthrown by impressive people, by, you know, Alexander the Great style people <laughs> from the past, or, you know, the, some of the crazy leaders of the mid-20th century who at least had something about them, however wicked they were. But she's just so unimpressive. For democracy to be tranced by such an unimpressive person would be a double insult, I think, to the, to the <laughs> people of this country. The thing that's really alarming about them, of course, is that they're going into this election on an explicitly anti-democratic ticket mm. uh, to overthrow the largest vote in history. I just think that's got limited appeal. I mean, I think even for lots of Remainers, that's got limited appeal. We know that 16.1 million people voted Remain, but we know they're not all Ramoners. Most yeah. of them are just normal people. We know them, they're friends, family, um, and many of them accept the outcome of the election and think that it should happen. And we always have to remind ourselves that the Remain elite is a very small section of society. It's not 48% by any stretch of the imagination. It's more like 1% or 2%. And Swinson is part of that very small elite who think they can use their clout and their power to override the people's wishes. And it's, it's morally and politically repugnant. And the Liberal Democrats 
are illiberal and undemocratic, and the more people realise that, the better. The Lib Dem policy that caught my eye this week was their pledge to basically have a have new rules on around public spending. They said they would put a one percent limit on the kind of deficit that governments were allowed to accrue. And now this is fascinating because not only is this fiscal rule stricter than the current Conservatives who are, you know, pledging to spend loads more on the NHS, um, almost in some tr- cases trying to outdo Labour. It's even stricter than George Osborne's Conservatives uh, under the famously, you know, pro-austerity government. And and you just sort of think, is that really all they have to offer? You know, they have to offer more of the same. It, you know, we stay in the EU and then we get more fiscal austerity. It's, it's just so such a bleak vision that they're kind of promising after they've cancelled Brexit. Let's not forget that they were in a coalition with the Conservatives and, it, you know, their own ability to win on their own positive policies for any kind of new kind of political change it, it you know it is absent they've always sort of i think swayed with the wind and gone where they can back up someone one you have to sort of admire the balls of joe swinson of continuously delusionally um <laughs> asserting that she could be prime minister. Um, but in the end, I think they know that if they're ever going to get anywhere near any kind of power, they're going to have to sidle up to people. And quite often, you know, the, let's not forget the kind of voter base of Lib Dems stereotypically has always been in places like the Southwest, you know, people who are conservative economically and socially, but they have that hint of a little bit of radicalism and the radicalism in this case comes from their opposition to Brexit. But they are, I say again, they're an incredibly boring party. Mm. And, you know, they've got this reputation. Young people hate them, rightly or wrongly, because of the whole tuition fees thing. You know, they've got a bit of an embarrassing tinge to them because of figures like Tim Farron or Nick Clegg. And uh, Joe Swinson doesn't seem to be able to match that. I mean, one of the more embarrassing things that they're doing or the kind of desperate thing that they're doing is this clutching at trying to be almost beat the greens at the game of um, being carbon neutral so you know the conservatives come out and say we're going to plant 30 million trees and blah 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 and then the lib dems come out and say no well, we'll plant 60 million yeah and uh, there's this <laughs> it's it's obvious that it's not very thought out. You know, Jo Swinton was quizzed on what she'll do to cut carbon. She says, well, we're going to tax frequent flyers. And when you actually look at the plans to do that, it's not really clear how they will do it. Their suggestion of pumping money into being able to go carbon neutral by 2045, there's no real detail on to how they'll do that. It's, it's, it's that kind of dangerous realm in which green policies just get the kind of green light as yeah. it were, without any kind of scrutiny. And if it's, this is a party that cares so little about the views of your average voter to stop Brexit, then it's quite alarming that they've got such ambitious green policies because what that will boil down to is just sidelining and ignoring the experience of ordinary working people in order to give the kind of green tick for being positive about the planet. So, you know, it's worrying. Yeah, every party has been trying to outdo the other on the the green grandstanding. I mean, the Greens, of course, as you'd expect, came out and said that this is our last chance to stop climate change Mm. with this election. They've promised £100 billion every year to spend on um, climate action, which is more than the education budget, it's worth saying. I mean, that that seems to me to be an insane use of um, public money. Not that I'm against spending lots of money, but really what skewed priorities. You know, you'd spend more on wind farms, on insulating people's houses and things like that than you would on educating the next <laughs> generation. Mm. 
The Greens have promised to carbon neutralise the economy by 2030, get down to net zero by that stage. It's interesting, there's been a kind of row brewing in Labour, a kind of quiet row between the unions and the people drawing up the manifesto. It seems as if Labour had initially tried to pledge to decarbonise the economy by 2030, but there was some pushback. The unions were pretty clear that this will destroy jobs. This will, you know, lower people's living standards. So now there's been a kind of fudge on that question. Yeah, and I'm with the unions on this issue, or mm. uh, the ones certainly that raised the problem of net zero, such a swift net zero target and the impact it would have on living standards, on jobs, on the ability of people to heat their homes, all sorts of things would be thrown into disarray by such a severe reactionary attack on growth and mm. um, industry and uh, the use of fossil fuels in particular. The thing is, you know, environmentalism is... It, it, is just a middle class conceit. I mean, everyone knows that it is. Everyone knows that it is really just an issue that obsesses those who have luxurious lives and therefore have time to think about things like fresh air or, you know, what it's like when they walk through Hampstead Heath or, you know, buying the right food and living the right lifestyle and being eco-friendly in everything that you do. It's, you know, people with money uh, uh, have much greater leeway to mm. engage in this kind of consumer politics. And environmentalism is fundamentally a consumer form of politics. It's, it's about consuming the right things and being seen to consume the right things. So the fact that it has taken over politics to the extent that it has, with all the parties making these absolutely harebrained claims that they will uh, cut z- carbon emissions by 2030 or 2050 is a real indictment of how politics has been colonized by that section of society. And not only do you have the union saying, guys, hold on, this won't benefit the working classes, but also there was a poll this week asking people what they thought was the most important issue in the election. Climate change was on there, but I think it was like number six or seven. Mm. The NHS was there, Brexit was there, much higher up. Other issues that people are genuinely concerned about. So I'm really worried. All this green grandstanding that Ben Pyle writes about on Spike this week, the way in which the parties are trying to outdo each other and the hysteria they're engaging in, this notion that the world is going to come to an end in 11 years, I think mm. that's the latest prediction, I think is, is an indictment of the way in which politics has increasingly become the preserve of a particular narrow strata of society who have their own particular concerns and bigger issues everyone wants clean air and everyone wants a nice environment to live in, but bigger, more pressing issues to do with economic life, democratic life, the power of people to determine the fate of the nation, they tend to get sidelined because politics is now increasingly the preserve of people who have different values to ours. So the environmentalism thing, I think it's worth pushing back on that and the the hysterical claims that are being made and the idea that it's an issue we should all devote our time to. And, and also, Ben Pyle makes this point brilliantly um, in his piece on Spikes. You know, it, it, it robs us of any choice. We have absolutely no choice in this election as to how mm. to go against this agenda. Every party is participating in it. You know, can we meaningfully be voting for climate action when you can't actually vote against it? Yeah. No, well, what does it become a religion? Like, you, if you sin against, if you speak against it, it's blasphemy, and mm. it's it's unacceptable to question it. And the problem with, you know, Brendan is right. Anyone sensible knows that, you know, we want to in the future live in a a healthy planet, that there are issues like highly congested areas in places in parts of London mean that kids are getting sick because of the air quality. All those things are important, but you can't solve them in an alarmist climate. And that's Mm. really important. I remember James Hartfield writing a piece for Spiked um, uh, back around the time that Grenfell had happened, which made the really clear point that 
Tragedies like this and mistakes like Grenfell happen when you do not have a calm and sensible approach to things like house building or green policies. And the kind of alarmist, get it done, make it look like we're doing something ends up with people cutting corners and making mistakes. Mm. I mean, it's important to remember that lots of the parties, the Lib Dems especially, are, are pledging to ban petrol and diesel cars. Yeah. That essentially means a poor tax in which you, there's no plans to give people electric cars to yeah. replace their petrol and diesel cars. What it essentially means is robbing working people mm. of their capital. It's like a reverse Robin Hood. It really equates to a poor tax. It links in with their Brexit policy. Their Brexit policy for Lib Dems and parties like them is about robbing working people of their political voice. And then the green policies come along and mm. say, not only are we going to do that, but we're actually also going to strip you of your your livelihood, of your quality of life. Mm. I mean, talk about elitism. This is the kind of elitist politics that I think anyone who has the interests of the working class or an interest of a progressive society has to vote against in this election. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. For the last um, couple of minutes, I want to talk about one other elitist who has been taking a lot of time away from the election. But this even came up in the um, leaders debate on on Wednesday. Prince Andrew um, has now stepped down from royal duties. I don't think that means he stopped taking any public money. but <laughs> <laughs> And he'll still do family occasions, like yes. I pointed out. <laughs> This has, in some ways, eclipsed a lot of the quite boring um, announcements that have been made this week. I mean, Brendan, what was your reaction to that dreadful interview, first of all? Oh, it was so bad. There are now reports from sources inside the palace that he wants to do a second interview, which can't (laughs) possibly be true. Confirmatory interview. (laughs) People's interview. They surely will not let him do that. That would be suicide for the royal family, which might not be a bad thing. Uh, it was terrible. It was it was a really awful interview. He came across the the word that kept coming to my mind was grotesque. He came mm. across as a grotesque figure from another era. Even the way he looked, his inappropriate laughter, his just his his he had this kind of cocksure approach without any basis in reality or engagement or any knowledge even of how to speak to people. So it was a real reminder of how aloof that family is, and and a, a real reminder of why they have quite sensibly. D- not given interviews. Mm. Um, you know, one of the recent episodes of, of The Crown in series three is about the time that the royals let the TV cameras in, into the palace in 1967, I think it was. And it was a disaster, a complete disaster. They did it to try and open up and look normal, but the reviews they got in the press for the TV show were terrible. People just thought they were grotesque. And the royal family recognized that locked the film away so it would never be seen again and just basically retreated back into the palace. So what he's done is crazy and his stepping down, I think, is quite almost unprecedented. I think Mm -hmm. people are talking about it in the same breath as the abdication, which I don't think is necessarily an exaggeration. It is quite unusual for the Queen to basically push him aside for the time being. The thing is, 
the reason I'm slightly torn is that I want the monarchy to be abolished and I want them to even to be humiliated because yeah. we need to open them up to the glare of public criticism. Um, that's essential part of abolishing the monarchy in the long term. But I don't want it to be abolished in this fashion. Yeah. And I do think what we have in the Andrew thing, unfortunately, is, is two forms of backward ideas clashing together. So on the one hand, you have the backward idea of the monarchy, which is completely out of date, and we should not have a hereditary family ruling over us. And you can see it in the family itself, which is just a crazy bunch of people. But then on the other side, the thing that's pushing against it is not a kind of Republican zeal for democracy. Hmm. As we know, the establishment hates democracy. It's this, the Me Too stuff. It's the kind of pedo obsession. It's this idea that he's a nonce. And this idea there are VIP networks and they're ruining people's lives. And it's an, it's another Tom Watson fantasy in my view. You're not allowed to say that, but that's my view of, of the obsession with him and Epstein and so on. So, it's a clash of two ugly worldviews, and I kind of want both to lose. Mm. Uh, and what we need to put in the place of all of this is just a proper Republican argument for having an elected head of state. Ella. The thing that struck me is, why is anyone surprised? I mean, why is anyone surprised <laughs> yeah. that members of the royal family spend their time when they're not doing, you know, ridiculous charitable outreach things like his pitch at the palace yeah. you know, idea? Um on yachts, in private parties, you know, drinking too much, spending loads of money and philandering. I mean, yeah, of course, this yeah. is what they do. We know this is what they do. It's Air Miles and <laughs> yeah, as well. well. We know <laughs> this is what Harry got up to. We, you know, this is not a surprise. It's just because Andrew is a particularly disgusting man and particularly on PR trained, it mm. seems, mm. that he yeah. accidentally has let it all out. And the thing I said, I was talking about this to someone, I said, would this have been any better? And would you have felt any more kind of a sympathy for the royals if he had come out and said, oh, yes, Epstein is an awful person and I'm really sorry? Mm. I, I don't think I would. Mm. And I think you're very right, Brenton, in saying that not only has this become, you know, part of the issue is if he is guilty of any kind of collusion with Epstein and that whole ugly scene, it shouldn't be decided upon and judged upon through, you know, discussion in the media or hearsay. It should happen. It, the proving of innocence or guilt should happen in the courts. Of, of course, he's avoiding that situation. Yeah. So it's, and also he chose to give the interview. So it's slightly odd. <laughs> um, but you're right to criticize that. And the other thing is this kind of, it's all a bit anti-rich in a kind of Mm. shallow way. So there was an interview of Lady Fiona Harvey, which, you know, I watch on Good Morning Britain. It's bizarre. You know, it's this kind of sounds very cruel, but this kind of airhead who just came on and really didn't know what to say, was very unsympathetic. It was all, again, a bit grotesque. But the criticism is just like, oh, they're horrible rich people. No, Mm. they're not just horrible rich people. They are horrible rich people with political power of which we are meant to show deference to, which has political consequences. So it has to be an argument that is more full of substance, more based in a kind of genuine, as Brendan says, democratic outrage, not just at the fact that these people are rich and not just at the fact that these men like Andrew have sex with young women, um, which, you know, is an immoral position, you could argue, but that they hold a position of power that is elevated to the rest of us. And Mm. therefore, they do get to bury interviews. They do get to avoid going to court. They do get to, you know, spin what they like. That's what we should be arguing against, not just that Andrew is this disgusting guy, but the whole institution of the monarchy and its attempt to protect him, let's not 
forget, is immoral, is corrupt and should be abolished. It's not just about kicking out Andrew from public life. It's about questioning the whole system from which he was born out of. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? We'll be back next week, but for more great Spiked content, just go to spiked-online.com.